Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Welcome back. Today, I have reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist, Dr. Rossi, with me. And I'm really excited to have her on. In fact, we have been planning to do this podcast for probably about five months now. Yeah, and we've finally been able to get together. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about um, how you became an REI specialist. Thank you. So I was always interested in women's health and decided that I wanted to do uh, an OBGYN training. Then within my training, I had um, decided that I wanted to specialize in fertility in women. And I also liked the hormonal side of infertility. I also appreciated um, some of the surgeries that we do in that field. And then finally, I had a family member that experienced infertility and ultimately had to use an egg donor. And so it has always been a passion to try to help build families for patients. And I've been very excited about the care that I've given people over the last 10 years. That's fantastic. And to go through the hardships of infertility is definitely something on a lot of women's minds, on my patients' minds. And so I'm really excited to ask you whatever we want to talk about today, questions about workup and when someone needs to see a specialist. So one of the things I think is worth mentioning that right off the bat that you had mentioned as well is that about one in eight couples suffers from infertility. So it is quite common. So even if it And it's also a condition that people tend to not talk about sometimes. Mm -hmm. So even if it seems like you have friends that aren't having kids and maybe they're telling you that they're not worried, it can be often people that you don't expect. It could be your child's teacher at school who doesn't have any kids. It could be friends or family members that have been married for several years. And because infertility is such a difficult issue to discuss for both men and women, sometimes patients, friends, family members are suffering and struggling and you don't even know about it. Yeah, it makes me think how sensitive we really need to be about asking about couples fertility and plans for children and family and things like that because everyone's family does look a little different. So one of the questions I get, I I field often from younger women is, when should I worry? So the American Society for Reproductive Medicine has guidelines on when patients should consider an evaluation for infertility. Currently, it states that for women less than age 35, that they should consider trying for a year before seeking help from an infertility specialist or from a physician. However, there are some caveats to that. So if women aren't having periods or if they're having significant pain or if there's other known reproductive issues or, you know, maybe if there's something that's been wrong with with their partner or with their husband, let's say that maybe their husband had cancer when he was a teenager and received chemotherapy or had surgery, you know, genital surgery at some point. Those women should not wait a year before they seek uh, help. Now, for women 35 and older, because fertility starts to go down as we get older and we want them to seek care and be able to get pregnant sooner, those women should really seek help after about six months of trying. One of the things we were talking about before we started recording is something else that you have a little passion for, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. But how does PCOS maybe play a role or what can someone um, look for if they're thinking to themselves? Is this something that could be affecting me when they're, you know, sitting at home 
worrying, reading stuff on the internet at night. What's kind of the cliff notes of polycystic ovarian syndrome? So PCOS is a very common, it's probably the most common uh, reproductive endocrinology issue among um, women. At least some studies say that about 7% of the population has it. And the main way that it affects fertility is that it does affect women's ovulation. Ovulation is when the body makes an egg. And if women with PCOS are unable to make that egg at a reliable time each month, then that couple doesn't really know when their fertile period is. They don't know when to have sex to try to help them get pregnant. And so if someone is worried that they have PCOS, um, some of the symptoms they may be experiencing could be rare periods, like maybe having periods you know, more than every 35 days. Sometimes those women will also have acne or hair growth. And then the other part of the diagnosis is um, you know, what their ovaries look like on um, ultrasound. PCOS is also something that will usually happen to women even from the time that they're teenagers. However, we do see sometimes that as women get older, sometimes they'll gain weight and sometimes their PCOS may appear at that time or even worsen. But it is a very, very common reason that women have infertility. And the other thing to understand about it is it's also a very easy thing to fix. So we that's, really that's great news. Right. Yeah. So we really want to see those women because often those women if their PCOS is really the only fertility issue and we can use simple, inexpensive medicines to get them to ovulate, you know, about 70% of them can be pregnant within six months. That's really encouraging for a lot of patients. I know my own patients um, and probably what you see. And then you also mentioned endometriosis. Again, could be a whole another talk. But briefly, what is some cliff notes that you might be suffering from endometriosis? Endometriosis is a condition when the the cells that are usually found inside the uterus or the endometrial cells can end up in other parts of the pelvis. And we don't know exactly why women have endometriosis, but it is another common condition. And probably the most common symptom of it is painful periods. Someone will also have pain with intercourse or they have pain around the time of ovulation each month. And from a fertility standpoint, We think that endometriosis can affect fertility in a couple ways. One, the sort of inflammation of the endometriosis may affect how the egg moves through the reproductive tract, how the sperm moves, and maybe even how the fertilized egg moves. But in addition, sometimes when women have very severe endometriosis, things can just be where they're not supposed to be. The ovary can get stuck and the tube can get scarred, and then it makes it hard for that egg to be able to get into the tube and for normal sort of movement of the egg and the sperm and everything to occur. Mm-hmm. So so women should know if there are under 35 years of age, it can be normal to take up a year to get pregnant, right? Correct. And if they see me in the office, sometimes I will check something. So I'm going to run them by you and you tell me if you think those are appropriate. And usually I'll just check their thyroid, make sure there's nothing with a thyroid abnormality. Sometimes I'll check for diabetes. Um, I'll check and see if their periods are pretty regular, ask them about multivitamins, ask them if they're drinking, ask them how much they're sleeping, ask them how stressed they are. And that's really kind of my first sort of overview, just to think about keeping them healthy in that year and encouraged during that year to know that there could really be nothing wrong. Anything else or anything I missed or anything you might add to that for that first year when you're you're really nervous, you're waiting, you're excited, and you're not getting pregnant, but it's not yet an abnormality per se. 
I think in that first year, women should be sometimes even just keeping track of their cycle. So they either want like in a little notebook or on their phone to be actually tracking their cycle to know how regular their periods are. Then some of those apps on phones can also help you target when your fertile time is. And so in, as a general rule, I'll tell patients to try to have sex every other day from days 10 through 20 of their cycle because it's very likely that they're going to ovulate somewhere in that window. And we tell patients they don't have to have sex every day because truthfully, if that sperm count on their partner is a little bit low, you actually probably don't want them to have sex every day. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And the, the sperm live in the genital tract for about 48 hours. A long hours. time, yeah. yeah. So, um, so the other things to think about are um, to have women take prenatal vitamins, um, to also have them try to you know, not drink as much, especially in the second half of their cycle in that window after they ovulate because they could become they could be pregnant and not know it yet. We would like them to stop smoking if they're smoking. In terms of things like caffeine, the literature is a little bit mixed on it. I think it's, as a rule, it's probably a good idea to not drink more than one or two cups of coffee or caffeine a day. Um, we try to have women maintain a healthy weight if they can. It is fine, though, to exercise. Um, all the studies on exercise and fertility and pregnancy seem to be reassuring. So really, women just want to try to be healthy and also help their partner be healthy. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think men are often forgotten about, but they also need to watch their weight. They also need to make sure that they're cutting out tobacco, limiting their alcohol, because we want to keep the sperm healthy as well. Yeah. So um, I do I do recommend my patients use some of the fertility apps or the period trackers. Do you have a favorite one that you like? Do you, you know, you mentioned them a minute ago. So do you have good experience using them or do you think they might frustrate more people? There are several different types of things women can do to try to monitor their fertility. So one is just doing like a calendar method or using an app to try to track their cycle and to then try to target having intercourse or sex during their fertile window. Another thing is to do something called a urine ovulation test. That's probably the most accurate way to help a woman try to get pregnant because it is a urine test, kind of like a pregnancy test. Mm -hmm. And they take that test once a day and it will tell them when they're going to ovulate, which really pinpoints their most fertile day. There's also something called basal body temperature, which women will check their temperature once a day with a special thermometer and they can do that in the morning. Some patients like to do that. Some people find that difficult to do. I would say the only downside to that is that tells you that you have ovulated. So the the cart's kind of left the horse at that point. Um, In general, though, what I tell patients is, you know, we don't want to make this a more stressful process than it has to be. So I'll see patients and, you know, I can tell they're, they come in and they have notebooks and they're tracking everything and they're taking their temperature. And sometimes they just need to be told that they don't have to do all of that. I really wonder what you think about the role that stress plays in fertility, especially in in the whole in the whole experience. That's I, probably a loaded question. Yeah, I just try to tell patients that I don't think stress is particularly helpful to the situation. Yeah. However, there are many women all around the world who are in very stressful situations who are getting pregnant. And there are women who are totally relaxed who Mm. aren't getting pregnant. Yeah. So in some ways, I don't want to put that stress on women because then they're worried that they're too stressed out and then they're stressed out that they're stressed. Yeah. Right. So I think that um, I think we all need to try to 
do our best to make our lives easier and to try to not add extra stress on the already stressful situation because infertility is stressful for a lot of people. And sometimes yeah. it's just simple. I mean, I'll, I'll tell patients it's just okay to do simple things like maybe they need to unfollow friends for a while on Facebook that have kids or babies because it's hard for them to see that over and over again. Yeah. Or maybe they need to, you know, not go to that baby shower for that person that isn't their good friend because it's just too stressful to be in another situation that where they can't they aren't having the baby. Yeah. So it's just allowing a little bit of time and space to let people manage this. Yeah. Um, now, say it has been a, a year or if it's if you're older than 35, um, 6 months and they come to see you. What are some of the first things you're going to test or look for at that point? The first visit actually we spent a fair amount of time just talking to the patients. Um a lot of times just by discussing their cycle with them, we can figure out if they're, you know, if they're having any abnormal bleeding or if they're ovulating early or late or if there's anything in their history or what they're doing, what their husbands are doing that could be affecting their fertility or if they have a history of something or symptoms of endometriosis or any of that. So we spend a long time talking with them. Um, sometimes we'll do a transvaginal ultrasound in the office, which allows us to look at the uterus and the ovaries. We will often do some sort of laboratory evaluation. So we will, as you said, look at their thyroid. Sometimes we will look at their ovarian reserve by mm -hmm. either checking an FSH level, an estradiol, or an estrogen level, and also sometimes checking a newer hormone called AMH, or anti-malarian hormone. Sometimes we'll also do other pregnancy testing, like we'll see if they're immune to different conditions like chicken pox. And then uh, we may also do something called a hysterosalpingogram or an HSG, and that is an x-ray test of the fallopian tubes in the uterus, and that tells us if the fallopian tubes are open. And it can also tell us if the uterus appears normal. And then we'll encourage the husband to do a semen analysis. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty basic, that's, I would say, the most basic infertility evaluation. So what percent is usually female-related, what percent is male-related, and what percent is unknown? So we ask, we always have to think of infertility as affecting the couple. Yeah. And so if we look at the couples, I would say about 20% is unexplained infertility, which yeah. means that that couple has a normal semen analysis, a normal fallopian tube test, and is probably ovulating. Yeah. Probably about 25% is male factor infertility. Mm -hmm. Probably about 20% or so is ovulatory issues, like in women with PCOS so would fall into that category. About 25% is what we call tubal factor infertility, which means that the fallopian tubes are blocked. That may be women who have had tubal disease from a prior infection or from a prior surgery, or maybe she just has her tubes tied and is trying to get pregnant after that. And then the other conditions that haven't been mentioned yet but kind of fall into the rest of the category are things like endometriosis, what we call decreased ovarian reserve, or when the woman has less eggs than other women her same age. What does the data, or what are you really seeing as a specialist in terms of what is the age that your fertility starts to decline the most? I think the biggest myth, actually, mm. is that infertile women are all older. Yes. I would tell you that most of the patients that walk in our door are less than 35, and they're just totally normal people who just you know, want to have kids, got married, tried to ha get pregnant in the first year or so, haven't been able to, and are just wanting to have their children. Mm -hmm. Now, we do know that as women 
kind of change their career paths. And there are more women that are trying to get pregnant later. But in general, a lot of our patients are just are less than 35. The story with the ovarian reserve is that women are born with all the eggs they're ever going to have. And we lose those eggs throughout our lives. And by the time we get to the age of 50 or so, we go through menopause and we don't have any eggs left and therefore we can't get pregnant anymore. But quality of the eggs that we carry with us throughout our lives decreases as we get older. And so the likelihood of getting pregnant and the ch- goes down and the chance of having a miscarriage goes up as we get older. Fertility probably starts to go down quicker around the age of 33, 34, 35. And so we need to be talking with women and women need to be understanding that. And I think one of the roles I have as an infertility specialist is to try to understand what a woman's goal is for having her family Mm -hmm. and sort of understanding what her age is, how long it takes to have the amount of kids that she wants to have, and then how fast we need to be helping her have those kids so that she has the family that she wants. Yeah. I have a question for you that you may or may not know, but I get asked all the time. A lot of my patients will say, I've been on birth control pills for a really, really long time. Does that affect my fertility? And they also want to know if that actually keeps their fertility. This is a common question I get as well. Yeah. So we're born with hundreds of thousands of eggs, probably even millions of eggs. And those eggs, I hate to say it, they just die over time. Oh, darn. Yeah. And um, whether we use them or not, if we don't use them, we lose them. And Uh so, you know, the idea with birth control pills is if you take them, you're not ovulating. So I'll have people say, well, if I wasn't ovulating those eggs, do Do I I still have them? them? No. The answer is no. They just die every month. Yeah. So, and there hasn't ever been any study that has linked birth control pill use to either decreased fertility or increased fertility. So, and one of the other Um, I think things that I see sometimes is, I mean, people really should have, especially with the birth control pills we have now, people should have very good fertility right after coming off the pill. Mm -hmm. And most women will regain normal menstrual function or have regular periods right after coming off the pill. So if, you know, a lot of women maybe don't remember because they maybe had irregular periods as a teenager and then they got put on pills and it's been 10 years and they stop them. If they're not having normal periods within a few months, they really need to see their doctor because it could be a sign that there's something else yeah, going on. Yeah, I, I kind of hear another myth is that, you know, well, I haven't gotten my period a couple months or so after my birth control pills, and that's just probably my birth control pills, and I sort of think, eh, a couple months after you should be. Right. Yes. That, that might be a sign that, you know, there's an underlying ovulation uh, issue. issue. Right. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Okay. And I was also under the impression that – no form of birth control will delay fertility except for maybe the depo injection, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I would think so. Birth control pills are out of the system pretty quickly. Something like a, a progestin-containing intrauterine device would probably, you probably should still have your period within a few months of that. Depo-Provera, which is a shot of progesterone, that does tend to hang around a little bit longer. So Sometimes women don't have periods after that for, I think, even up to nine months. Mm-hmm. But most of the other, other uh, forms of birth control would be out of the system quite quickly. Good. So we can kind of clear up the myth that you can be on birth control methods and you can come off and have your children and, and be okay. I, I sometimes try to avoid the depot if they want to have a family relatively soon. Um, but good to know because that's a question that I get all the time. So everyone's heard of IVF, um, but, you know, not everyone does IVF to get pregnant. So what are some of the common treatments that you use before you go to IVF? 
The treatments that we use for our patients definitely depend on their diagnosis. I would say in general, only a minority of the patients seeking infertility treatment in the United States will need IVF. And again, IVF is in vitro fertilization, and that is a technique where women take shots of medicine to help make many eggs at once, and then we, they undergo a surgical procedure where we take the eggs from their ovaries and put them with sperm in the laboratory. Most women will be able to conceive with things like pills of medication. Um, sometimes they'll do also a procedure called an intrauterine insemination, which is where we put the sperm into the uterus. Occasionally, women will need surgery on their path to have children, either to uh, treat something like endometriosis, or sometimes we, they may have you know, some sort of issue that they were born with, like an abnormal shape to the uterus that may need to be repaired, or maybe they have an ovarian cyst. And then, as I said, probably less than 10% of the patients who are seen for infertility will ultimately do in vitro fertilization. That's a smaller percentage than, I think we kind of have this myth that everyone's going to do IVF. Right. And I, the biggest concern, I think, with patients who are considering infertility treatment is they're all very scared about how invasive it's going to be, mm-hmm. and they're also very nervous about the cost. cost. Right. Yeah. So uh, we practice in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And Ohio is one of the states in the country where there is a mandate where infertility testing should be covered by a patient's insurance plan. So that is one of the fortunate things we can have in our state. There are about 15 to 20 states in the country that either have a mandate where the testing is covered or the treatment is covered. Depending on where you are in the country and, you know, if you have any coverage, each month the treatment may be somewhere Pills may be less than $20. The insemination may be, you know, somewhere between three to $500. And in vitro fertilization can sometimes cost up to $15,000. And so, you know, I spend a lot of time with our patients helping them kind of balance this. What kind of treatment do they need? What have we tried? What are they comfortable with? What are their costs? And trying to balance that um, all together. Wow. What are the ways you kind of help your patients through the stress of, you know, once they're past that primary um, evaluation and they're kind of in the thrones of this? I think every, every patient and every couple is a little bit different. You're right, though. I mean, many patients come in and when they, you know, sometimes they come in and they're kind of excited to start treatment because they really want to try to have a family. Sometimes patients have been trying for two years before they even got into our door. So you first have to remind them, about sort of what's realistic, what the expectation is, and sort of where they fall in everything. Meaning that I spend a lot of time just telling patients, it's okay that you haven't gotten pregnant yet. The chance of you getting pregnant would have only been this amount, and you're okay, and it's going to be fine. I think we just need to keep trying. Mm -hmm. Because I have the perspective of sort of, you know, everybody that we see that sometimes they don't, and they just need to be encouraged that it's going to be okay. And then we encourage them to work together. A lot of our patients will also see psychologists. There are local resources like support groups. Um, I know that, again, in our town, Columbus, there's a, a local support group of a national chapter. There's a national chapter called Resolve, and the website is resolve.org. And they have a national, they have a website, national website. They have meetings all over the country. They sponsor different events. They're sponsoring um Infertility Awareness Week, which is at the end of April. And so I think, and I have a lot of patients who've also found groups online or on Facebook, and sometimes that's more comfortable for people too. And I really encourage that for patients because 
when you have infertility, again, it's common, but there are so many people around us that haven't experienced it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes very well-meaning family members and friends say things that are very hurtful. And sometimes the only other person that really understands what you're going through is somebody who's also been through it. Yeah, yeah. Before we kind of wrap up, what's your favorite thing about your job? Oh, there's no question that my favorite thing is uh, when somebody comes back with their baby that we helped Aww. them <laughs> yeah, yeah. two years before and they come yeah. back to have another baby and I get to yeah. see the baby that we helped make and they they come back happy. They want to have another one yeah. and that this their, their demeanor and sort of how they act is just so different and it's hard to come back. I mean, it's always hard to come back even for number two, but when you get to hold that baby that you helped make, oh, it's just the I bet thing. that's incredible. Yeah, that's I'm like great. getting goosebumps and yeah. I don't even do that. That's so cool. What <laughs> advice do you have if anyone is interested in your, you know, similar career path or someone wants to go into OBGYN and become an REI? What, what kind of advice would you have for them? I think that this is the greatest field. Um, I think it's very important that we take care of women, that we help promote women's health. And within that, our patients are great. I mean, this is a very, in some in some ways, what we do on a day-to-day basis as infertility doctors is very stressful. We also see patients who have recurrent miscarriage, and that's also very difficult. But our patients are so dedicated, and they'll do, you know, they're working so hard, and they're dedicated, and they're doing the best that they can, and everyone's kind of on the same team. And um, I think that's what makes it so worthwhile. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So there's still a lot to unpack, and this was, you know, kind of a crash course, but I loved having you here. Um, Anything else that you want to say before we close up? No, I just want, you know, I want the listeners to know that they never need to be scared, you know, about their fertility. If anyone has any questions about um, their fertility, if they're nervous, they don't know if they should be concerned or not, it's always easier to just check in with your care provider or your doctor and find out if there's anything you need to be concerned about. It is always a little bit heartbreaking when I see, you know, a patient who's been trying for three years and either has been too scared to see a provider or maybe the provider like kind of discounted them because they were young or they told them to just keep trying. So if you have concerns, just keep working and trying to find someone who will listen to you so that you can get the care you need. Yeah. So that's why, you know, I'm excited about doing this podcast. I want to educate people. I want women to advocate for themselves. And we also want them to know what's kind of within the normal range. So when to worry, when not to worry. Well, thank you so much. If you have any questions, comments, you know, let, let me know. And hopefully we'll have you come back again and talk about something else because I know there's more to talk about. All right. Well, thank you all for listening in and hope you listen again soon. Bye.